So this evening, uh, I'd like to continue speaking a bit on the theme of spiritual maturity that we've been talking about on and off over the last, oh, 30 years, but in particular, <laughs> the particular the last year or so. And, and in this, to invite on your part, um, those of you who are involved in a spiritual practice, especially, and those who are coming to it, some wise reflection. And in this case, the reflection has to do with some of the fundamental questions in Buddhist teaching of freedom and attachment. Uh, letting go. What's the opposite of attachment? Detachment? Is that the goal? Or what does it mean to let go? How do you let go? If you have something in your hand and someone says, let go of it, and you say, well, how do I do that? And they s could say, well, turn your hand over, you know, and uncurl your fingers. And then you say, well, how do I uncurl my fingers? And nobody actually can tell you that, can they? You actually have to feel it and understand it for yourself inside. So people come together, whether it's to a meditation center or in other forms of spiritual practice, um, in order to live in this world not just by the external values, if you will, the kind of modern consumer society. And yet, as we hear spiritual teachings, it's also possible to kind of take them on as just one more thing, you know, that you should do. You should diet and go to the gym and get some therapy and do a little spiritual practice and also invest in high-tech stocks <laughs> at the right time. Uh, I remember reading in the newspaper some, oh, few years ago, and Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who started Transcendental Meditation and actually did a lot of very good things in the world, he had um, sent an offer to the uh, city council of the city of San Diego that if they were willing to pay him $15 million, he would send 10,000 meditators to San Diego to do meditation and change the vibration of the city so they would no longer need a police department and that it would save them a lot of money in the long run. We'll never know about whether that experiment would work or not. But there are ways in which we can kind of enter a spiritual life um, and bring to it some of the kind of commercialism or materialism or those things that are so rife in, in the culture around us without a lot of reflection. What does it actually mean to uh, seek a wise heart, freedom in oneself. We sit together and have created this retreat center and the other parts of Spirit Rock as a kind of sacred space within which we as human beings can take our seat halfway between heaven and earth and listen to our bodies, to our hearts, to our minds, and to be in the presence of what is actually true for us, just as it is, not with a lot of ideals and not with a lot of models and recipes about salvation, but to discover what it means in a kind of vulnerable and honorable human way to just sit and be with oneself and what is true. 
even if you have a sick child, terribly sick, or you have some tragedy in your life, or some great difficulty, is it possible to face that and say, this is what's so, opening to it and bringing to that compassion and wisdom. Now, in the Buddhist teachings, one of the great um, and famous texts from the third Zen ancestor, verses on the true mind or the faith mind, begins with this passage. The great way or the true way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When attachment and hatred are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinion for or against anything. So this is how it begins. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love or attachment and hatred are both absent, everything becomes clear. Make the smallest distinction, however, heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. What does this say? In India there is a saying that when a pickpocket meets a saint, they see only the saint's pockets and what's in them. That is, our desires blind us. If you walk in the room or you walk down the street in San Anselmo or San Rafael or San Francisco and you're hungry, what do you see? Pizzerias, taquerias, you know, all the kinds of food. You don't see the shoe stores. You don't notice the traffic. You look at what will feed that hunger. You know, and if you come in the room and you're looking to date, you'll sort the room very quickly into those who are eligible, <laughs> those who aren't eligible according to your criteria, and then those who are in competition with you for those who are eligible, right? <laughs> Our desires blind us. So the great way, the way of openness, is not difficult for those who have no preferences. Sounds kind of okay. I mean, this is a very deep text, but here he's saying it's kind of okay. The reason I say that is the problem is, is there anyone in this room who has no preferences? <laughs> Have you ever met anyone who has no preferences? Even the Dalai Lama who was here recently, he had preferences about the freedom of Tibet and about the serving of all beings. He had preferences like everybody else. So how do we actually use these teachings that point to the blindness of desire. When the Buddha began to teach in his first words of Dharma after his awakening, he spoke of the Four Noble Truths, the truth that there is suffering in this world and that no human being is exempt, that we all are subject to aging, sickness, death, every single one of us. We are all subject to change and loss, that in everyone's life there's praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, that it is so for us. And not until we accept this can we live wisely. The first noble truth, the truth of sorrow. And there is in that suffering um, also a reality that things aren't reliable, are they? Think of what you rely on. 
at least outwardly. And whatever it happens to be, you can rely on it only to a certain extent. But then it can change. So the first truth of the Buddha is that there is suffering. Anybody not have that, you're excused, right? <laughs> the second is that much of our suffering, there's a kind of fundamental suffering of life, of aging and sickness and death that we all share, that needs to be accepted. Much of our suffering comes either from not accepting the truth of the way the human situation is, or by our grasping and attachment, wanting it somehow, holding on, not wanting it to change. If only we could hold it a certain way, then things would be all right. You remember that cartoon that I like to talk about, I probably did it last week, of the, the uh, nomads on the camels, remember? From the Chronicle, and the father on his camel, and the mother, and the three kids with all their stuff going across the desert, and the father's talking to the kid at the end of the line. Stop asking me when we're going to get there for crying out loud, we're nomads, right? <laughs> And it's the truth of our human condition. So the suffering that we have in life is because we don't want things to change, or we want them to change in a different way than they do. Or that we grasp, that we're attached. That's the traditional translation. And then the third noble truth, that there is freedom to be found. By releasing, grasping, and fear, there is liberation for each of us in our hearts. And the fourth, that there's a path or a gateway to this freedom, which is called the middle path. That place of being present for the way things are in the world without struggling against it, without grasping what cannot be grasped, without what's often translated as attachment. And then the Buddha speaks of the joy that comes when we learn this, not as a philosophy, but in our own hearts. One of the passages... He says, he's wandering around India, the Buddha, in this story anyway, shortly after his enlightenment, and runs across a herdsman on the bank of the river. And the herdsman says, oh, you're a monk, I'm, I'm better off. I've boiled my rice, I've milked my cows, I live together with my fellows on the banks of the Mahi River. My home is covered, the fire is kindled, therefore if thou like rain, O sky. It's kind of a poem. And the Buddha says, I'm free from anger, free from stubbornness. I abide for as long as I wish by the banks of the Mahi River. My house is uncovered. The fire of craving and grasping is extinguished. Therefore, if thou like rain, O sky. And the herdsman says, gadflies are not found with me. The meadows abound with grass. The cows can endure the rain. Therefore, if thou like rain, O sky. And the Buddha replies, by me is discovered a well-constructed raft. I have passed over the stream, the further bank I have come to, overcome the torrent. There is no further use for struggle. Therefore, if thou write grain, O sky. The, then the herdsman goes on, my wife is obedient, not wanton. Remember, these were the old days, right? <laughs> For a long time she has been living together with me kindly. She is winning. I hear nothing wicked of her. Therefore, if thou like rain, O sky. And the Buddha replies, he says, My mind is obedient, delivered from all entanglements. For a long time it has been cultivated. It has been freed. Therefore, there is nothing wicked in me. Therefore, if thou like rain, O sky. 
So it's this dialogue between somebody who's speaking of worldly freedoms and then someone who says, that may be so, but here is a freedom that's not dependent on the changing conditions of the world. Now, when we think about this kind of non-attachment, if you will, for certain people, those who choose perhaps a monastic life, which is a very valid and wonderful choice, you really let go of all that. The coolness of the monastery, the absence of relationship. And in certain Buddhist texts, it will say that if you have one spouse or lover or one child, you will have one sorrow. And if you have many children, you will have many sources of sorrow. I mean, this is heavy medicine, isn't it? But you know, you hear everybody laughs a little bit because there's some truth in it, in a way. And so you kind of, on certain days, depending how your teenage children are behaving, right, or what your lover or spouse has done or not done that day, you kind of envy those people in the monastery. But go where you wish, cave, monastery, India, Tibet, do what you like, your mind goes with you. That's the problem. And it gets very confusing. What is this freedom then? Is it the freedom going away from the world? Um, I remember speaking in one Zen center, and uh, the Zen master and I were talking, some students said, Zen students follow these precepts of letting go of things and follow the rules, but when you become free as a Zen master, then no need for rules, then you're really free. I was suspicious. But one way that this teaching is put out is quite simple. The more you're attached, the more you suffer. The attachment of grasping. And we know it in romance. I mean, think about it. You, you all have your own experience. Let me read you a poem from Etheridge Knight, who, is, uh, who was um, one of the great American poets, won the National Book Award for this book of poetry. He spent a lot of his years in prison, but he would come out and teach periodically, and he was really an inspiration to a whole generation of black poets. Um, this is about romance. Um, forgive the language, but I think Etheridge says it well. It's called Feeling Fucked Up. <laughs> Are you listening, Buddha? Right. <laughs> Lord, she's done gone, left me, done packed up and split, and I with no way to make her come back, and everywhere the world is bare, bright, bone white, crystal sand, glistens, dope, death, dead, dying, and jiving, drove her away, made her take her laughter and her smiles and her softness and her midnight sighs. Fuck cold train and music and clouds drifting in the sky. Fuck the sea and the trees and the sky and the birds and alligators and all the animals that roam the earth. Fuck Marx and Mao and Fidel and Nkrumah and democracy and communism and smack and pot. And fuck red ripe tomatoes and Joseph. Fuck Mary. Fuck religion. God. Jesus. All the disciples. Malcolm. Fuck the revolution. Fuck freedom. Fuck the whole fucking thing. All I want. All I want now is my woman back so my soul can sing. <laughs> and we kind of sell this in our music and our culture. And not only we sell it, we live it. But there's a kind of a paradox. One is, of course, that that Zen master who said, Zen master, don't follow rules, actually got in quite a lot of trouble some years <laughs> after that. 
a second, um, you know, is really, is there an appropriate kind of attachment? Does it mean we all have to go out and sell our house and our car and divorce our spouse and kind of let go of everything to be free? I got a phone call from a Zen master, oh, some time ago, probably 10 years ago or, or so, inviting me to go to a big Buddhist teacher's conference in, in uh, another part of the country. And I said I couldn't go. My daughter was young then. She was five years old. and. She was just starting school. It was like her first t day of kindergarten, and there were some important things to attend to my family. I said, I can't go. And he got really upset. He said, this is an important Buddhist conference, and in Korea or Japan or wherever I come from, forget wh where he said, he said, the Dharma comes first. Your commitment to save all beings is the most important thing, and family, um, that kind of attachment you have to leave behind. And I listened to him, and I said, well, you know, the understanding that I have is if you can't care for your own children and your lovers and your garden and so forth, then all the rest of Zen doesn't really work. And I'm wondering what kind of Zen master you are, right? <laughs> I thought I kind of did good in that. <laughs> he hasn't forgiven me, so I was right. <laughs> Of course, he gets points for that comment, too, right? <laughs> so is freedom freedom from things? Is it freedom from your body, freedom from your family, freedom from responsibilities? Is that what it is? The story of Mullah Nasruddin, the Sufi sage and wise man and holy fool, he had a donkey that was carrying um, salt to market. And the bags were filled with salt. And to get to market, they had to cross the stream. And the donkey crossed the stream. And as he crossed, this was a long river, the salt started to dissolve. And the bags got lighter and lighter. And the donkey got friskier and friskier. It was really happy. And Nasruddin was really upset. So the next time he went to market, he said, I'll fix that donkey. And he put wool in the saddlebags. And the donkey got to the stream, and it was looking really happy. And it got in the water, and ah, the wool got full of water. And Nasruddin said, I'll teach you to think that every time you go in the stream, you're going to be happy. This was the story. What kind of freedom is it that we look for in our own lives? I think it could be helpful to clarify our language, to understand that there's really a spectrum in this word attachment. On one extreme, or one end, there is addiction. And a fine book in our bookstore in the community, Meditation Hall, by Janine Roth, entitled Feeding the Hungry Heart. And with addiction, there is need and desperation. And with it, um, I mean, in any area, it can be addiction to relationships, addiction to drugs or alcohol or sex or money or, or busyness or workaholism. Um, we all know what that feeling is like. Um, and if we're to free ourselves from that level of attachment, uh, we really have to face it and the suffering that it causes and the hole in the soul that tries to get filled up over and over by that particular experience. This is called the realm of the hungry ghost in Buddhist psychology. A hungry ghost is a being who has a huge belly and a tiny pinhole mouth. So no matter how much they e eat all the time, they can never feel satisfied. 
And we all have that experience. If you want to know what the realm of the hungry ghost looks like and you're not so clear, go to Las Vegas, right? In the middle of the night, go into the rooms where there's the slots and you'll get a sense of the hungry ghost realm. But it's not just there, it's in us. So one description of attachment is addiction. Another less intense is clinging or craving. Is that part of us that grasps, that's not satisfied, that wants more, that tries to hold, that tries to possess? You know what that feels like, whether it's money or property or the way people see us or people around us. And then perhaps less intense than that kind of clinging and grasping, there is the quality of attachment. And there might be different kinds of attachment. There's attachment that holds us to things in an unhealthy way that binds us, connects us. But maybe also there's a healthy kind of attachment, like a mother for a child. If that attachment isn't there, um, actually a great uh, rupture and a great suffering takes place. And then there's commitment, which has the same kind of glue in a way and devotion. Um, Adrian Rich, the poet, puts it this way, speaking of the necessary commitment for a relationship to work. An honorable human relationship, that is, one in which two people have the right to use the word love, is a process delicate, violent, often terrifying to both persons involved. A process of deepening the truths they can tell to each other. It is important to do this because it breaks down human self-delusion and attachment to isolation. That's the other kind of attachment. Not the attachment to a person, but attachment to our separateness. It is important to do this because in doing so, we do justice to our own human complexity. It is important to do this whenever we can because we find so few people to go that hard way with us. So there is commitment, which is different than the grasping of attachment. It is a devotion or a love or a willingness to stay present for another, to care. And then maybe there's preference which is different than attachment. We have to have something that guides us, and with that preference, there can be intention or motivation, different forms of desire. In seeking a wise relationship to our body, to the community around us, to others, there's a kind of mystery that we have to examine. What is wise attachment, and what is unwise attachment? What does it feel like to let go in a good way? What is it time to let go of in your life? And letting go doesn't mean getting rid of it. A, a better translation for letting go is letting be, not trying to possess or control your children, your lover. You are eight years old. It's Sunday evening. You've been granted an extra hour before bed. The family's playing Monopoly. You've been told you're big enough to join them. You lose. You're losing continuously. Your stomach cramps with fear. Nearly all your possessions are gone. The money pile in front of you is almost gone. Your brothers are snatching all the houses from your streets. 
the last street is being sold. You have to give in. You have lost. And suddenly, you know that it is only a game. You jump up with joy and accidentally knock the board over. <laughs> it falls on the floor, and the others are angry with you. But you laugh as you run upstairs, for you have seen the joy of being nothing and having nothing. And what you have seen gives you an immeasurable freedom. And I think that we all actually have experiences like that. Just as we know what it's like to grasp in unhealthy ways, we also have, in a cellular way, a kind of wisdom of the body that says, oh, this is really good just to let it be and not grasp it, or just to let it go. And it might be outer things, pleasures that we seek more and more of, but you know what happens after a while. I mean, pleasure is wonderful. There's nothing that I'm... I mean, even the Buddha said, if it were not that pleasure were pleasurable, we wouldn't have a problem. It is pleasurable. But the problem is when we try to repeat something that really can't be repeated over and over again. And then it becomes not a pleasure, but a need in some fashion. And it can be the outer senses, it can also be the kind of desires for the way people should be, and all our ideas about how somebody else should be. I mean, try to tell your own mind how it should be. Does it listen? Honestly. And then you think, okay, I'm going to have this other person be the way I want them to be. <laughs> Those who enter the gates of heaven, said William Blake, are not those who have no desires or who have curbed their desires, but those who have cultivated an understanding of them. So we can get attached to pleasures, to things, to people, to the way people should be. We can also get attached to our, our ideas and views, how the world should be, whether it's communist or capitalist or socialist or democratic or republican or, you know, Catholic or Protestant, or you know all the views, the incredible number of views. And as the Buddha said, the more views you have generally, the more suffering you have, if you're attached to them. And it happens in big ways, creates warfare globally. It happens in small ways. Why do you keep talking about my past mistakes, said the husband. I thought you said you'd forgiven and forgotten. And his wife replied, I have, but I want to make sure that you don't forget that I've forgotten and forgiven. <laughs> we kind of let go with one hand and kind of pick it up with the other and stash it in our back pocket. And it's not just individual, it's, it's cultural. Uh, this passage that I read often from Joanna Macy, because it has such uh, compelling truth in it, even our scientists can see that there's no technological fix, no amount of computers or internet that can save us from population explosion, deforestation, climate disruption, continuing warfare and racism, poison by pollution, extinction of species. We are going to have to want different things, seek different pleasures, pursue different goals than those that have been driving us and our global economy. And we can feel the price of collective addiction and collective attachment in warfare, 
in environmental pollution, in uh, all kinds of global suffering, in the fact that there is more money spent on weapons by tenfold than would feed every single hungry human being on Earth. Ten percent of the world's weapons budget each year would feed every single hungry person. So attachment and addiction to pleasures, to things, to views and ideas, Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland or wherever else. And most deeply, the attachment or the addiction to the sense of separateness at all, the sense that we're somehow separate. And when we feel that separateness, that separate sense of self, then all the other kinds of needs and fears and addictions and so forth grow out of that. But is that who we really are? In a sense, this is the question of spiritual life. Who are we really? This amazing dance of incarnating in a human form and a human body. I think probably most of you in this room at one time or another have read some of Raymond Moody's works on near-death experiences. and All these people who go through the tunnel and see the light and come back as this woman. Then I saw this radiant light, the most beautiful thing that I had ever experienced. And it came into me, and it was me. And in my heart arose the question, was it worth it? Was it worth it, the end of life? And looking back, I could say yes, because I'd learned to love. Or this book, similar to it, based on his work, called Closer to the Light, which is a, a physician's interviews with children who had near-death experiences, who were in comas and died and came back. And it happened because this Seattle physician was working in the emergency room with this young girl who'd come in and had drowned in the swimming pool and was in a coma for a week and finally came back. And he wanted to know what had happened. Had she hit her head or did someone throw her in the pool? Because he wanted to know how to how to um, treat her medically when she finally woke up. And he said, so what happened to you? And she said, do you mean before I met the Heavenly Father or after? <laughs> and he said, well, tell me a little more. And she said, well, there was this beautiful, I was in the pool, and then this beautiful woman who had you know, this long white robe came and took my hand, and then I saw my grandparents who had died, and, and then I saw Jesus and the Heavenly Father. And he said, do you want to go home? And I said, I am home. And then he said, but how about your mama? And all of a sudden I had a vision of my mother and her tears, and I realized I had to go back for my mother. And this book is just filled with stories that children tell of what it was like to go into this light, if you will. And in the Buddhist tradition, as one dies, as in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, someone will come to your bedside um, and read into your ear, O nobly born, O you who are the son or daughter of the Buddha, the son or daughter of a good family, you who have a noble birth because of your good heart, which is every human being, remember the clear light, remember the pure, clear white light from which everything in the universe comes, to which everything in the universe returns, the original nature of your own heart and mind the natural state. Let go into this light, trust it, merge with it. It is your own true nature. It is home.
But the idea of spiritual life isn't to wait till you die, basically, to remember this. You know the old Hindu song where the baby in the womb is singing, don't let me forget who I am. And then the verse changes as soon as the baby's born. Oh dear, I'm beginning to forget already. I liked it when the Dalai Lama was talking about these teachings of what it means to die and who we really are, what brings us into life, incarnation. And he said, you know, quite honestly, I am kind of looking forward to dying. And said, why is that? He said, because I'm, I'm curious. I would like to see if all these teachings that I've learned, whether they're really going to work or not. You know? What an amazing thing to say. The addiction, the craving, the need that we all know in ourselves comes from an inner sense of emptiness, from what's called the body of fear or the small sense of self, the sense of separateness that maybe never was held or never was loved and wants that now. And the extremes of this separation lead to what are called attachment disorders, the inability to attach. And there are clinics and attachment disorder therapies, especially for high-risk children, certain ones. And I know, for example, a friend who adopted a child from Russia who was in an orphanage. And she said the orphanage was just terrible. The children were beaten and treated terribly, but also it was so poor in this particular orphanage that they didn't have shoes and coats, which meant for the eight months that it was winter, they couldn't go outside. They had to stay inside, a lot of them in each little room. And it was just, it was horrible kind of prison-like conditions. And this child came, it was a beautiful child, but the child would scream and break things and lie and um, um, do all the kind of things of somebody who wasn't attached to another human being. Terrible kinds of things, and hit and bite and, and really harm other, other children without, a, so to speak, without a conscience. And the particular kind of therapy that they tried, which worked, was called holding therapy, in which the child was held on a two people's laps and not released and allowed to get up and struggled and screamed and bit and cursed and so forth for hours and hours until it absolutely broke down um, in a kind of bondage. And then when the child broke down and couldn't go any further and just began to weep and weep and sob and kind of regressed, then the mother would hold the child like it was a baby. And they did this a series of times, a terrible thing to do to a human being, to completely restrain them you know, and not let them go no matter what happens. But in a sense, what it did was to break that whole structure of, of defenses that the child had, had built to survive and start parenting again with real attachment and trust instead of that which was absent. So that's the kind of extreme. We need a certain kind of attachment, which we might call connectedness, well-being, mirroring. And to a lesser degree, we all share this this body of fear, this small sense of self, arises at times with low self-esteem and unworthiness and fear of rejection and fear of loss and fear of what they'll say and fear of our feelings, of our grief or our fear or our rage or our love. Some people, you know that old cartoon from Jules Pfeiffer where one woman 
and a man are kind of together, and sh she's um, standing in the corner with her arms outstretched, and he's kind of cowering a little bit. Um, and she's saying, but I love you. And he looks back at her and says, don't you threaten me, <laughs> you know. But we all have, at times, fear, whether it's fear of rejection or fear of dependence or fear of love or fear of our, our, our grief or our rage and so forth, we get lost in this small sense of self. To meditate, to undertake a spiritual practice, is an invitation to discover a wholeness that is who you really are to include your body and your heart and your mind and your deepest longing and your rage and your fear and your love and all of that to make a space of compassion big enough to include all of our humanity. Kabir, the Indian mystic poet, puts it this way. We sense that there is some sort of spirit that loves birds and animals and the ants, even in the midst of our fear, we know this. Perhaps the same one who gave a radiance to you in your mother's womb. Is it logical you would be walking around entirely orphaned now? The truth is you turned away yourself and decided to go in the dark alone, perhaps to protect yourself. And now you are tangled up in others and have forgotten what you once knew. Kabir says, who are you really, wanderer? Why not remember today? So our meditation in that way isn't to make ourselves different or become a different person, but rather it's to discover that wholeness that is there and available to us in any moment. There's a famous story in India about this possibility that spiritual life offers, of the sage Nagarjuna, Nagarjuna. And because Nagarjuna was such a wise monk and teacher, at one point the king in that area, the emperor, had a golden begging bowl made to offer to him. So here's this wandering mendicant with this incredible gold begging bowl. And he was sleeping one night, wandered to a temple, starting to sleep, and all of a sudden he saw someone in the shadows and this thief kind of waiting till he fell asleep to come and steal the golden bowl. And he said, you there, thief, come here, please, in the kindliest way. He says, please take this so that you won't disturb my prayers in the mornings. <laughs> and the thief's eyes got wide. And he said, you mean I can have it? And Agarjuna says, you may take, take. And the thief couldn't take it. And he said, you have something that I want that's even more than this golden bowl. This is really what meditation offers. There's a possibility of healing, of the only way to work with that hole in ourselves is actually to accept it, to love it, of sitting with our, the hole, the suffering, the, the pain, the, the fear, all those pieces, and discovering that it's possible to rest in our being, to not run away on one hand, to not seek anything on the other really not trying to be different. Instead, to touch our pain and loss and sorrow and incompleteness, our brokenness, with compassion. So that when we sit, we expand our heart and it's not just 
my pain or your pain or my loneliness or your loneliness, but it's the loneliness we all share as human beings. It's the sorrows we carry for what goes on in this world and what's happened to us. It's not my pain, but it's the pain, the pain of being human. And when we sit with that compassion and hear all the stories of love and hate and ambition and fear and all that society wants us to be and all that we try to do, if we do that and let this great stillness that is always here show itself, we discover a kind of inner knowing. My teacher called it the one who knows in us, that place of wisdom. And we can be true to our heart, true to ourself. Pablo Neruda, maybe the greatest poet of the century. I wish I could read it in Spanish. El miedo, fear. Everyone is after me to jump through hoops, whoop it up, play football, rush about, even go swimming and flying, fair enough. Everyone is after me to take it easy. They all make doctor's appointments for me, eyeing me in that quizzical way. What's going on? Everyone is after me to take a trip, to come in, to leave, not to travel, to die, and alternately not to die. It doesn't matter. Everyone is spotting oddness in my innards, suddenly shocked by radio-awful diagrams. I do not agree. Everyone is picking at my poetry with their relentless knives and forks, trying, no doubt, to find a fly. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of the whole world, afraid of cold water, afraid of death. I am, as all mortals are, unable to be patient. And so, in these brief passing days, I shall not take them into account. I shall open up and closet myself with my most treacherous enemy, Pablo Neruda. <laughs> There's so many things that want us to be something for them. And it's only when we take the time to sit and really listen that we can make a light of ourselves. The last words of the Buddha, make of yourself a lamp, make of yourself a light, and be true to our inner knowing. And if we are, that includes our sorrows. It includes the wisdom that acknowledges there will be loss there will be change, there will be suffering, there will be grief. That is the truth. But out of everything that's lost, something new also is born. So often, we want to be loved, we want to be held, and it's so hard to be vulnerable. Meditation, in a way, is an invitation to that vulnerability of the, the rawness, the openness of the heart, not because it's good for us, but because it moves us back to the truth that we are held, that if we can sit and open, we'll discover that this universe that has given birth to us really does hold us. And in that, we gradually learn to move from unhealthy attachment to a kind of wise relationship, an interdependence, a trust. When the Heart Sutra says, form is not different than emptiness, and emptiness is not different than form, 
We can get all confused in these Buddhist teachings about non-attachment and emptiness. But I think wise attachment is really the capacity to be present. To be present in a moment of holding the cup of tea and feeling its warmth in your hand and savoring the odor of it and feeling it as it goes down your throat and realizing that this moment is just the moment of tasting the tea and it will never happen again. Or the moment of looking in the eyes of your lover or seeing a sunset that won't happen again. Or even an amazing and phenomenal traffic jam, you know, on the way into or out of San Francisco. The biggest traffic jam you have ever seen. I mean, it is amazing. Stupid, it's true, but it's amazing. Here it is, all these multicolored cars built these phenomenal machines to carry people at high speed, and they're all sitting there. I mean, it's ridiculous. It is the capacity to be present that transforms our life whether it's in our work, or in our art, or in our cooking, or eating, or lovemaking. And that capacity for presence grows in commitment and intimacy. Intimacy is really contact or presence over time. You don't get intimate like that. Intimacy actually grows through this capacity to be present, sustained over time. So if you come to meditate, it won't be fun. And it won't be bad. It will be all of that. You'll be happy and sad and lonely and bored and excited and interested and, and you'll suffer and you'll, you'll have bliss if you're lucky. Um, but the idea isn't that some experience happen. Rather that we find that ground of the heart that can be open and free no matter what the changing circumstances of the world. The kind of inner joy. The Buddha speaks of it in these terms. Says in the Dhammapada, live in joy and love even among those who hate. Live in joy and health even among the afflicted. Live in joy and peace even among the troubled. Live in joy without grasping possessions. Move like the shining ones. Nirvana, which is the absence of suffering, doesn't mean that the world goes away. Nirvana is the absence of struggle with the world as it is. You could say that there are two aspects to nirvana. One is compassion because we're so open that we see the world and our heart is really allowed to touch it all. And the other is this great spacious wisdom that sees, as one Zen master said, nirvana is so open and joyful. The whole idea of spiritual renunciation is a kind of joke, trying to make oneself let go of ordinary life and pleasures. Nirvana is so open and joyful, is so much more than any of the small pleasures we grasp after. You don't renounce the world, you gain the world. And it doesn't mean nirvana is at the end of, you know, you go to Asia and spend 40 years in Kyoto sitting facing the wall in the Zen monastery and then you have a moment of nirvana. Nirvana is actually also our human nature and our birthright. My teacher Buddhadasa called it a great public health measure. 
<laughs> and he said, study your life and you'll see moments of nirvana every day when you lie down and you want to let go and go to sleep. Who doesn't like that? That's a moment of nirvana. When you're there in the middle of some conflict and you say, wow, I'm really in this conflict, and you just let it go for a moment and breathe is a moment of nirvana. When you're in the traffic jam and you're all worked up about it and you realize, I'm not going anywhere, and you feel your breath, change the station, listen to some nice music and say, here we are. I mean, where are you going anyway? It's a moment of nirvana. The wise heart has this great capacity for freedom, and in this freedom, the capacity for commitment and love. And the secret, and in one way, an answer to that koan I spoke of at the beginning about attachment and non-attachment, the secret is that the opposite of attachment is not detachment, but love. Because true love does not seek to possess or control it doesn't separate or fear what is there. True love is the ability to be present without grasping. And love offers its blessings. You feel it so directly with your children, if you have children, or your nieces or nephews or whatever. If you want them to be a certain way and try to control them and grasp them, they don't like it. And you don't like it either after a while. But if you love them, you can be there to support and bless and benefit and offer what's necessary, not because you're trying to make them a certain way, but because they are a part of you as we are a part of one another. The opposite of attachment is not detachment, but love. And that love which doesn't seek to possess or control, that isn't afraid, that is what gives freedom to the heart freedom to be in the presence of fear and hate and delusion and all those things without getting lost in them, because they're part of our experience, but they're not who we really are. And that freedom isn't far away. It is available right now. And in fact, it's what's listening to these words. It knows. So let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.